What is up, guys? My name is KJ, and this is Why Theology. Today, we got a very special episode. I got a couple of special guests on here, um, Creston Thomas, Pastor Jeremiah, and Mr. Zach, or Pastor Zach. Um, today, we're going to be, I guess we're going to have our own night of eschatology. But um, before we do that, let me read these verses. Um, before I do that, can you guys all introduce yourselves? Yes, I guess I'll go first. I'm Jeremiah Nortier. And um, I have the honor of serving at 12-5 Church in Jonesboro. Uh, that's the, 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 the name 12, the number five church here in Jonesboro. So please check us out on our website. Um, and so tonight, um, I'm look, really looking forward to just discussing the gospel and our, our blessed hope and in, in the, the manner that Jesus will be returning. So KJ, thanks for having me back on. No problem, man. Yeah, I'm Zach Davis. I pastor First Baptist Church in Mark Tree. Uh, Arkansas up here in Northeast Arkansas. Glad to be with you guys. Thanks for having me. Um, we'll be representing the post mill position and hopefully shedding some glorious hope on this conversation tonight. So just a minute. Hey, thanks KJ for inviting me and Jeremiah for inviting me on the podcast. I'm Creston Thomas. I serve at Christ Redeemer Church in Pine Bluff. And man, I've been wanting to have a, a good conversation discussion about this topic for a while. I think the church, the universal, the invisible church needs this conversation more. So uh, I'm just honored to be able to be invited to be with you guys here tonight. And hopefully we have us a really good discussion. I'm ready to get to these questions and the answers. But uh, let me read the text for us. Um, you guys don't know, we're in Revelation chapter 20. A lot of this, before I do that, we're talking about something that's known as eschatology. If you guys aren't familiar with my episodes, um, my very first episode, I kind of dealt with kind of the, the, that's the general broad definition of what eschatology is and breaking that down. But in short, we're dealing with the study of last things. Now it's kind of broad. Um, eschatology is more than just Revelation 20. It's talk, talking about things such as resurrection, you know, heaven, the final state. There's a lot of things to kind of deal with eschatology. But for the sake of tonight, we're gonna to be dealing with the study of last things. And so one of those things is the millennium. And so we're re reading in Revelation 20. Revelation 20 says this, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hands. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound to him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years was completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones and they that sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or his image. And I received a mark on their forehead or on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part of the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they'll be priests of God and of Christ and reign with him for a thousand years. I guess I kind of stopped there. If somebody else wants to, wants to kind of like read verses seven um, through 15, it's going to be dealing with like, you know, the other part of it. But let's start right there for right now and kind of dialogue with this. Um, if you guys don't know, I have uh, all three positions kind of held here. Uh, Mr. Jeremiah, he'll be representing pre-mill. Uh, Mr. Creston, he'll be resting, uh, representing our mill. And Mr. <laughs> Zach will be resting post-mill. Sorry. So, um, what is the millennium? Can somebody kind of, I guess, give us a broad or I guess a short definition of what the millennium is, kind of what we're dealing with here? Sure, I'll, I'll chime in. Um, 
historically the the millennial reign is referred to as the thousand years of Christ's return. When he returns in some fashion, when we're referring to the thousand the millennial reign, the question we're talking about is this more of a figurative millennial reign? Or is it more literal? I think that's that's kind of we'll see it in one of two lights. Is this more talking about a past inaugural beginning point? Or is this something that's going to be future tense? So we're really talking about is it past, future, or figurative or more literal? What do y'all think about that understanding? Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I, I see it very well as that. I would also categorize it as a period where the Great Commission goes forth and is accomplished. Um, obviously, that's going to come with my understanding of the of the, the nature of the rain, uh, with it being something that's already inaugurated and carrying out throughout the church history here, as opposed to your position with it being future. Right, right. right. Yeah, yeah. I agree with you, brothers, man. Um, I'll say it the same way, man, that uh, this rain, this, um, you say a thousand years, millennial, um, this rain, um, uh, we know, uh, is, is a rain that's uh, has been disputed so many different angles and everything. Uh, is it literal or is it symbolic? Um, but we know it is referring to this uh, thousand years. And uh, I think we can go in a little bit more detail tonight, you know, kind of where our position is at, how we want to kind of see the, how we see the text and things of that nature. So, but I agree with you, brothers. Now, um, with, uh, you know, excellent definitions like you guys has given, um, I guess we'll start with the premium view. Um, you guys have all, I guess, kind of, you know, defined the millennium, but what is pre-meal? How does one who interprets the pre-meal, I guess, view Revelation chapter 20? So I've, I've tried to really understand this from multiple angles. And KJ, you and I have talked about how there's even differences within the pre-millennial camp. So I, I can only speak for what's been really convincing for me and I one of the things that's really persuasive is in Revelation 1 verse 19 is it seems like John is rece receiving this vision about what is to come. So it's almost like we receive a bullet point outline of how the book of Revelation is going to unfold like a story. And the reason why that's persuasive to me is that would entail a chronological flow. Things after one event, there's going to be another event and that triggers another event and so on. And so that verse says, Jesus in this vision to John is saying, right, therefore, the things which you have seen, so I note past tense, those things that are present tense, and those things that will take place after this. And so what's really persuasive to me as being the, a, a pre-millennial view is that I see, once you, once you see kind of Revelation 4, is at that point, I see a lot of this being future tense, given the chronology of the book of Revelation. So that's probably something we will talk about, is how we interpret Revelation more cyclical. Is it talking about cycles of the same event and things in the early church? Or is it more unfolding in a chronological story-like fashion? So with that being said, I would say my position, and this is another thing, I'm a learner at heart. I cannot wait to hear from Preston and from Zach. And I want to better understand all these orthodox positions of eschatology. I'm learning and I guarantee you I will change my mind over time in these things because we unite together on the, the essentials. Jesus is coming back. We're going to rule and reign with him. 
and we will have new bodies fit for eternity. So at this point in time, I lean towards this pre-millennial. I think we are existing and living in a time pre-before um, the millennial kingdom where Jesus comes and sets up initially um, his kingdom here on earth. Um, like to add real quick, um, I'll be representing the historic premium with um, Mr. Jeremiah. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but just, I guess, to add to like kind of the premium view, um, now there is kind of how Jeremiah said there's some differences within this, um, I guess, position. You have what's known as dispensational premium, you have historic premium. And I lean more towards like the side of historic premium. Kristen knows this, but I lean a little bit kind of close to the eye mill, then kind of like dispensational premium and post mill. I am kind of, I guess, pessimistic in how I view like things, I guess, as it unfolds before Christ returns. But what me and Crescent kind of similar is that we both kind of view the nature of the book of Revelation as symbolic. Now, kind of how Jeremiah just said, we have, a, I guess, an outline of things that's, you know, already happened, things that were going to happen in his day and then things are going to happen in the future. Now, um, there's a word that we use in theology known as a recapitulation. You guys know um, with the Gospels, telling the same story, but giving you guys different vantage points. Well, I believe John, throughout these future events, he's telling us uh, the same story, but from different vantage points, but they're all symbolically doing so. But there's, there's this, I guess symbolism is describing literal events that will take place in the future. Mm. He's telling the same story over and over and over, but from different, different vantage points. And so uh, I guess another thing too, um, as you guys know, the millennium is a thousand years we're talking about here. And so when we say pre-mill, we're saying that Christ is gonna return or pre or before the millennium and set up this millennium kingdom here on earth. And that's kind of what me and Jeremiah would say that we, all the believers will reign here on earth with Christ. Now the historic pre-mill position would say that Christ would kind of be vindicating his people. And so you guys know um, all throughout uh, generations, you know, past, even currently, all those Christians who have been martyred, all those Christians who have shed tears, in a sense, in this thousand year period of a literal reign here on earth, Christ will, be, Christ will be kind of balancing out all those uh, negative things that happened to all these people over the time period. So that's kind of a historic position. Now, Mr. Zach, um, you are the post-mill position. What is kind of the post-mill and how do you um, interpret the book of Revelation? And I love what Jeremiah said about being a learner because, man, I'm right there with him. I'm excited to hear what all you brothers are going to say and just explaining that view. Um, as far as the post-mill understanding goes, the Puritans and those of old understood it to be a future uh, literal thousand years, what we know as a golden age, where the gospel and the carrying out of the Great Commission has kind of had such a great effect that it affects not only things spiritual, but it affects also things physical. In our day, in my understanding of the millennium is that it is a symbolic representation of what we know here as this church age, but the gospel is gradually conquering, gradually going forth uh, and will have such a great effect. Um, that God's kingdom is being increased. And you have to ask the question, well, how can you take it the thousand years symbolically? And I think the scripture gives us warrant to do so. Um, it says that a day to the Lord is a thousand years. Better is one day in your court than thousand elsewhere. The Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills. So it's my understanding that Jesus Christ at his ascension um, goes to the father on a cloud. And that's how we see him go in Acts 1. And this reference is straight back to Daniel chapter 7, 13 and 14 where it says, I, Daniel, when I saw the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days on a cloud, to him was given dominion, kingdom, and power. And then he says that all nations, languages, and peoples should serve him. And that's the exact same language that we see in Matthew 28 when Jesus Christ gave the commission. So it's my understanding that when the Spirit came at Pentecost, that this new age was 
has come in to be. And then there's a 40 year overlap um, between 30 and the year 70, um, which is 30 is when Jesus dies. And I believe that's the year of Pentecost. And then Jerusalem, the temple that was still standing for 40 years is destroyed. So we've got like a relay of this old Jerusalem and now the new Jerusalem and the new Jerusalem being the church is left vindicated as God's people and God's messengers and now has will go forth uh, to preach this gospel and to conquer. And a lot of people will give the inclination to say, Zach, well, I, I don't see that things are getting better. <laughs> well, Jesus, Jesus said that the kingdom would be like leaven and you don't put bread in the oven and it rides instantly. You put bread in the oven and it, the yeast gradually goes. It gradually rises. And I believe that's what will happen over time. If you looked at the stock market in one day spans, then you may not see much of a change. But if you zoom out to five years, um, I think that you have a case to make this millennium that it's gradually going forth over time. And one last thing, in Daniel chapter two, we're given the kingdoms. Um, and we know that Nebuchadnezzar had the dream and it was Babylon, then uh, Medo-Persia, then Alexander the, the Great in Greece. And then the fourth kingdom was Rome. And it said that there was a stone that came in and struck that statue on the foot being Rome. And that kingdom started out as a stone, but it grew to be a great mountain. And I believe that that's the kingdom of God. And gradually over time, uh, the preaching of the gospel will conquer the world. All right. And uh, Mr. Creston Thomas, um, how does uh, someone who holds the position on me of the book of Revelation chapter 20? Man, just hearing from these brothers, can I can I be both? Can I be an odd meal, post meal, and pre historical pre meal? Uh, uh, man, uh, man, that was um, just just like the brother said. Man, I'm I'm learning and learning as I go, man. And so, um, man, I agree a lot with what you guys just mentioned there. And so, um, but KJ said something a second ago. Uh, said something about you know you see the book as symbolic. And a lot of times people view you say the odd meal position as you know they see this thousand years. That's this symbolic you know and um um and not a literal but i would say that you know the thousand years uh yes we use symbolic language but we are talking about something that actually is literal these we believe the bible is a literal book you know that these things will happen and um and so but we also see that you know within within the, even the word you know revelation that we use you get the word like the popular literature uh, revealing of these hidden things. So it's these hidden things uh, that's going to be revealed, that point to something actual literal. But the word amil, I think it's come from Latin. The word ah mean, you know, no, no millennial, which I don't too much care for the name amil, like no millennial, because I think it is a millennium. It is a thousand years. The scripture tells us several times, you should see it right there in Revelation 20, that it is a thousand years. And so um, for this thousand years, uh, that is referred to, I would say, is a it's a multitude of years, a lot of years, um, just like we see throughout the book. It's like I said, it's a popular literature book that has a lot of symbolism throughout the book. Um, I think Peter Gentry mentions what seven seven seals, seven trumpets, talks about seven spirits. Um, you even see seven major sections in this book, and so um, it's a lot of symbols in there in the book and. Uh, time we have each ever i mean all these different symbols there's so many things we're going to be learning about this book for the for for eternity for the rest of the rest of our lives but uh but the book is like i say is um um i would see it as a more of uh, say odd meal but let me back up some i think it's been like four or five different ways to interpret um interpretation 
I think it's uh, I think I think KJ, you might have missed a little bit of a, a little bit of it. Um, a preterist view. Um, I think a a, a futuristic view, historic view, and a yeah. I think idealistic. Yeah. Did I say it right? Yeah, idealist. Okay, and it's a uh, more of an electric, I think, type of view. And so I normally have held to this more of idealistic view is in the sense of this, this book is representing um, nothing but symbol, like it's a lot of symbolic interpretation, representation. Um, and, and what is it pointing to is something that is happening, not actually pointing to like something that was happening right then, but like, like, like right there at a, a particular moment. For example, a preterist would say like during the time of John, that a lot of these things already took place like in the first century. And so idealistic view kind of sees it more of like a lot of these things that happened in the first century and third century. All of these things have been symbolic to a spiritual warfare that's been taking place throughout history. Um, then the futurist view is that, hey, none of this stuff has happened. You know, a lot of it's going to happen at the end when all these things start, you know, unveiling themselves to us. Um, and a historic view, um, I'm not sure a historic view when actually where they started in history to calculate, you know, all these things that took place. But be honest with you, man, I see a lot of things I can take from all of them. I see a blender here. I think you throw a lot of these things in here. I think even in the preterist view, I think we could take a lot about things that did take place in the first century. But I wouldn't limit, you know, the entire book to the first century, that everything took place. But I think the first century, actually, um, I see this type of twofold things happening that's going to point to something happening in the end that did something that happened in the first century. And so, um, but also I see history, the benefit of history. And I also see the individual, I mean, the, um, the benefit of also uh, the idolistic standard the symbols. So I kind of see more of a blended type of view with all these different interpretations that we kind of can pick from and things of that. But, uh, but let me get back to Almir real quick. You know, I get a little long-winded. Um, real quick, Almir, I would say this is that this, thousand year reign that Christ is actually and the brother just mentioned right there we hear Christ uh, at his crucifixion and after he died he raised from the grave and he sits at the right hand of his father so we see Christ is reigning right now and all his enemies put up under his feet he's reigning right now and by him reigning right now his church is reigning with him right now and as we reigning with him um here you know spiritually as we reigning with him we still suffer, you know, even though we reign with Christ, suffering is still around us. So I don't see things are, you know, in a sense of physically is getting better. Um, I think physically things are getting worse, but spiritually um, things are. Christ is getting better because Christ now, kingdom is growing. Unbelievers are coming to Christ. So Christ is putting his enemies under his feet. After every soul come to Christ, it's just another mark of Christ's victorious work um, that's happening right now. So I would say Christ is this Amir, this millennial reign is happening right now, and Christ is reigning right now, while his enemies are under his feet. Wonderful explanation, man. Um, you guys are all hinting at it. Um, again, me and Jeremiah are kind of on the same team. So I'm just going to assume this is kind of what you guys will always say. Uh, Creston just said that he interprets the book of Revelation more in an idealistic sense. Uh, Mr. Zach, how, how would you interpret uh, like the entire book of Revelation? So I would take what I, I, I'm interested to see if we all agree with this, that full preterism is dangerous. Um, <laughs> heresy, I'd probably call it heresy too. Okay. Um, so I, I definitely take passages such as the first Thessalonians four, what's traditionally yeah. known as the rapture passage and first 
Corinthians 15 as future. Um, but the majority of Revelation, I'm, especially the first 19, 20 chapters, I'm taking to be um, relevant to the first century. So when we get to Revelation chapter 21 and 22, I see that it's symbolically describing the church. And the reason I would do this is, well, I mean, you take the very first verse in the book of Revelation. It says things that must shortly take place. Um, it, verse three says the time is near at hand. All through this, we see um, things that are going to happen. In Revelation chapter one and verse seven, you see verses that talk about um, they're going to see Jesus coming, even them who pierced him. And this echoes right back into Matthew 24 with what Jesus said, that all of these things are going to take place in that generation. So when I think there's different ways to talk about the coming, um, and I think he came in judgment on Jerusalem. So the Jews use Rome to kill Jesus, and then Jesus uses Rome to judge the Jews. Um, so I see the book of Revelation um, in, a, in the preterist sense for what's known as the first uh, 1920 chapters. Um, and then I would take the historicist uh, view on chapters 21 and 22, that the church began and now is being carried out through uh, history. All right. So, and then Mr. Jeremiah, I'm sure like me, you're probably in agreement. Um, would you view, so I'm sure all of us, let's all say this. So chapters one through three, we know that those are like actual literal things that actually took place. As far as those seven, seven letters that get, seven letters that John wrote to, those are actual literal things that happened in the past. But what we differ, I guess, is how we start to view chapters four, I guess, slash five to the end of the book. That's kind of what I guess the disagreement start. But Creston, you said that you're more idealistic. And Mrs. Zach, you're saying that you're kind of like partial prejudice. And then Jeremiah, would you be futuristic? I, I, I would say right there, idealistic, uh, elected, you know, in there, you know, between in there, you know, kind of. Jeremiah, you're futuristic. I'm futuristic, but this is where I want to say, even though I have a bent towards a, a more literal and chronological view of the book of Revelation, I'm definitely sensitive to symbolism because these are seven historic churches in Asia Minor, but I see these as being seven different categories of churches. They represent what church, what, what type of churches um, exist even today. And so to me, I think that carries a symbolic look of what the Church of Philadelphia the church that loves the bride and the promises for them. And then you see other churches that fall away, what apostate churches look like. So even though that I would probably hold to a stronger literal view, I definitely want to be sensitive to the symbolism because like Kristen said, this is apocalyptic literature. So I don't want to be blinded to a wooden interpretation of this book. I just think the overall arching thing I see is more of a chronological flow rather than a cyclical flow. Okay, so we're definitely in agreement on all, everything you just said. So <laughs> <laughs> now, um, I guess it's going to lead us to like this part right here, because you all guys have been hinting at it. But how do we view the kingdom itself? So like, um, I guess we'll start, I guess, since Premier started first, we, you know, me and you attacked this, Mr. Jeremiah. But how does like people who hold to the, you know, premium position view the kingdom of God and the millennium and why? So there's so many passages in the New Testament, and I think alluded to in the Old Testament, talk about the kingdom of God. That is a wide domain of what that word can be used. And so what I want to say is I agree heavily with the all-man post-mill view that something radical happened at Jesus's first coming and at his death and resurrection. So when I read in the Gospels, 
Uh, I believe it's in Matthew chapter 12, where Jesus says, when he's talking about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and a house divided cannot stand, he makes a staggering statement. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So I think Jesus embodies the kingdom of God. This is why he is referred to as the groom. Don't Now is not the time of weeping because I'm here in your midst. So in a very real sense, Jesus represents the kingdom of God on earth. And so I believe in some sense that the kingdom was inaugurated also at his resurrection. But here's where I believe we begin to diverge. I, we all believe in an already but not yet sense of the kingdom. And so we're probably going to apply this a little bit differently. But when I, when I see that Jesus ascends to heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father, I believe he is ruling and reigning here on earth spiritually by means of the Holy Spirit indwelling believers. And it's the church and it's gospel going forth. And, and Jesus is sovereign. He is the sovereign God. So he's always in one sense been ruling and reigning Old Testament, New Testament. But I would see the kingdom already being a spiritual kingdom. And then what is pre and what we are, I would still be waiting for in a future sense is Jesus returning in a bodily sense to set up his kingdom here on earth. And so I don't want to negate the fact that Jesus, when he was here on earth, that was an aspect of the kingdom. He inaugurated in some fashion that spiritual kingdom. I, I just believe the, the, pre, the, the millennial view encompasses more a convergence of the spiritual kingdom with that bodily return of Christ as well. Got tears in my eyes, man. I got nothing to say. No, <laughs> kind of just add. I mean, just he said everything I would say. Um, kind of what Christ came, he set up the spiritual kingdom, and kind of what Jeremiah said. And then when we get to Revelation twenty, this thousand year reign here on earth. You know, there, like I said, there is some division in the pre-mill camp. Some interpret to be like a long period of time, and then I myself interpret to be a literal number. This literal number represents. And Jeremiah, you got something too. Yeah, so I was also wanting to read a, a key verse from where I'm coming from, comes from, so when, when Paul speaks in, you know, his Pauline writings, you got to think he is a Christian in a sense, um, speaking to Christians in this spiritual age, uh, there's always been one people of God, but he says something interesting in Romans chapter 14, I believe it's in verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, which I would say is what we're experiencing now in our life here on earth. And he says, but is of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So this mm. kind of gives me a clue to it. It's the Holy Spirit that, you know, um, is indwelling believers. And so we're experiencing this kingdom already. But what is yet to come is that physical reign of glory that jesus will set up so i just wanted to say that's a crucial verse for where i'm coming from hmm. like um his story premier guy's name is george Alden Ladd. he has a whole book about the kingdom of god he talks about too like um everything jeremiah said um this spiritual kingdom is here right now if you guys know in the lord's prayer i hope everybody's praying the lord's prayer but if you guys know the lord's prayer <laughs> to pray you know thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven and so in certain aspects like in order to have a kingdom, you have to have a king, right? And so this king who is ruling spiritually, once he puts all enemies under his feet, he will then come and embody that kingdom here on earth. That's essentially what me and Jeremiah are kind of saying. But um, Mr. Zach, you're up next, man. 
because uh, you're the post field position. So. <laughs> but um, how would you throw that in first? <laughs> so in Second Samuel, and I believe it's seven, it talks about um, in Second Samuel seven, I believe it. It talks about that this this future kingdom, and it says that David is going to be dead while Christ sits on the Davidic throne. Well, if this happens in a future millennium, then David is going to be alive. But right now, David is dead. And right now, Jesus Christ is seated, what I believe, on David's throne. And if you take passages such as Habakkuk uh, 2.14, where it talks about that the, the world will be, the earth will be as full as the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Or if you take passages that say the similar thing in Isaiah 11, then um, I think it leads us to believe something that also includes something fear, uh, physical and not just spiritual. And John chapter 18 and verse 36, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight. And I think playing on what Jeremiah was talking about, I take that to be, this is not going to be conquered that something is physically conquered, but that doesn't mean it's not going to have a physical aspect. So I believe that the kingdom is something that's now and that will be achieved and will have an end and a consummation and a conquering, uh, but it's going to be through the preaching of the gospel. If there was a verse that Jesus, Peter, the Apostle Paul, and it's the most quoted verse in the New Testament, it's God's favorite Bible verse, and King David all mentioned it. It's Psalm 110.1, and it says that the Lord said to my Lord, or the Father said to my son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Um, I, I believe that Jesus Christ is going to sit there until all of his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. And that could be, you know, abortion or whatever those enemies are. That's not to say that every single person will be saved. Um, but also playing along with that in Psalm 2, it says that at his ascension, that he will receive the nations as his inheritance if he asks for it. And I don't believe that Jesus Christ forgot to ask for the nations as an inheritance. I believe there is, and I believe he rules them now. That's one explanation, man. Okay, and Mr. Zach, I had a quick question, I guess, for somebody that's kind of like lost, um, I, I guess, about the post-mill position. How does like this kingdom, we always say that Christ right now is reigning here on earth. So there's some sort of spiritual aspect about this kingdom, but how does the kingdom kind of unfold for the post-mill position? So alongside of the spiritual influence, uh, we, it, if you talk to 10 post-millennials, you may wind up with 10 uh, and interpretations of theonomy <laughs> but when god in in the book of genesis god gave adam dominion over uh, over the earth and i believe that if jesus christ truly reversed the curse uh, then there's going to be an aspect of god's law that's still going to uh, pertain mm. if we look today at societies that last you look at a godless society and whatever it's built on it don't last um so it's my understanding that as we go forth and preach the gospel, that God's law is going to infiltrate every area of life. And to what extent that's going to take over, um, you know, I, I don't know that anybody would say 100% for sure. Um, but there are passages that I, I believe Amil would put in the eternal state and that pre-mill would put in the uh, literal thousand year future millennium, like in Isaiah 65, that I would place in this life in this world that's going to happen and it's going to be a you know that there's there's going to be a, not complete peace but if we're the new jerusalem jerusalem is the city of peace jesus christ is the prince of peace well the city of peace will bring the true peace uh to the earth and i think that's the only way that the earth will be able to survive um is because of god's law i mean you think about what happened when noah 
there's only eight people that get on the boat. And because there was no law, there was wickedness everywhere. So the only way that God could sustain the world is if he gave man law. And it was his law, the true righteous law that we know to live by. Um, so it, as far as the dominion and the theonomy at the end and what's known as this golden age, which I don't think just drops out of heaven. I, I think it's gradual and continual. Um, man, you could come across so many different things, but I just think we're gradually uh, moving towards, if we take a step back and look at history, then we're gradually moving towards uh, through the preaching of the gospel. This is not something political from the top down. This is built from the ground up. Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, laid the 12 uh, apostles as the foundation, and it's being built from the ground up, and the kingdom slowly takes over the world um, through the preaching of the gospel, but affects all physical areas. Okay. That's a good explanation, man. Thank you, man, for the explanation. Um, last but not least, uh, Christ and Thomas, how, do, um, how would you interpret like um, the kingdom of God? I know you kind of mentioned earlier that we are currently now living in the millennium, but how would you kind of interpret it? Yeah, um, and, and I always agree again with um, uh, Jeremiah, the, uh, the already but not yet, um, you know, the already, already but not yet, you know, kingdom that, you know, Christ, even in, when he was with his disciples, um, I think what Matthew 6, 33, when it talks about, um, you know, but seek ye the first, the kingdom of God. Um, I think what Mark 1, 15, you know, Thomas Field, kingdom of, uh, the kingdom of God is at hand. I mean, I keep going to so many kingdoms. He was talking about this kingdom. So I believe that the kingdom of God was there, you know, and, uh, and I think even Jesus, Matthew, again, um, Matthew chapter four, four, right after he, Jesus is tempted on the, on the mountain with Satan and he comes down and he comes in and bring good news and bring good tidings to the kingdom of God. I think it's right there too in Matthew four. So Jesus, when he comes and he is in, at his incarnation, um, he brings in this new kingdom, even at his coming, this already, but not yet kingdom. Um, um, but we would say that, I mean, I would see is that even though he comes and brings us already, but not yet kingdom, we know his eternal kingdom, um, will come as the consummation of all things. Uh, but we do see as well that, uh, a piece of, or pieces of some more of this kingdom, um, at his, um, at the passion, you know, when he, you know, was put to death and, um, when he was raised up, you know, was, uh, raised up and. And I think uh, Zach said this, you know, all authority. I think Zach said that I might have, I, I don't want to get my boy wrong. So, um, but all authority is given to Christ. And we see this authority and Christ uh, allow this, uh, his authority to have dominion. This dominion he gives us to see the disciples to have dominion, authority. And it seemed like the same thing we saw in Genesis chapter one, chapter two, you know, with Adam and Eve, they was to have dominion to rule the earth. But now, you know, uh, they couldn't do it, but now when Jesus came, he reigned, and again, I think Zach said this, it was beautiful how he said this, you know, they couldn't reign, but now Jesus come. Now Jesus comes in and take this kingdom, uh, and now Jesus reigns, and by him reigning, those who are reconciled and united with him, they get to reign with him, and they are reigning with him, even right now, while Christ is sitting at the right hand of the, at his, at the, right hand of, of the throne of the Father, um, that they are reigning right now with Christ um, while they're on earth spiritually. I think Jeremiah mentioned that spiritually they're reigning with Christ. And as they reign with him, they are uh, a part of this, part of this kingdom, this spiritual kingdom. But the kingdom that we're truly waiting on is this physical kingdom. That's going to match our, that's going to match the spiritual kingdom. Uh, when Christ comes back and get our new 
bodies and get everything new, made new, um, that's when I would say that the true kingdom is actually gonna, um, it's gonna really, really, I guess, gonna come into fruition. But, but I will say that it's, it is a realized kingdom that Christ is reigning right now, but um, we are waiting on our bodies for us to reign with our physical body as well to see this total reign, this total kingdom inaugurated, you know, is fully come in and uh, in all of his, in all of his power. Now, uh, just for clarity, because like everything you just said, it kind of sounds like the premium position, but I know like we kind of differ on this, but like for clarity, I guess those, okay. I guess the, the realized part, um, the already but not yet, when do you see like, I guess the not yet part being fulfilled? Like, is it in the millennium kingdom or is it like in the new heavens and new earth? How would you view that? Because me and Jeremiah, part, we would say like the not yet part is when he returns, but how would you kind of view that part? Yeah, I think most, a lot of, like I said, I'll see it as a realized, you guys heard the terminology? Yeah. The, the realized kingdom. Um, I think it is realized. Christ is reigning right now. We are, he is reigning right now. Uh, but I would say that it's, I mean, I would say is that until everything is consummated at the end, when we get our physical bodies, when we actually is the total kingdom and the new heavens and new earth, the total one comes in. Uh, I think that's the actual completion of this of this kingdom uh, when he comes back i think right now it's still that it still is in there for even though he reigned i think it still is in that kingdom that he's reigning in but it still is not that full out fully you know um, i want to say realize but i realize so uh so i would say it, it's we're waiting on that full kingdom to actually come in when we get our bodies when they get the new heavens and new earth um, I think I just said that, but I don't know if I'm just repeating the same thing I said. Uh, what, what, what was the question again? Or Are you good, man? So you, you okay. kind of answered it. So like, for example, me and Jeremiah, we would agree with everything you said, but like what we probably would differ is that we kind of believe as soon as Christ returns, he sets up some, you know, a kingdom here on earth. And it's that physical kingdom that we see here in Revelation 20, the thousand years. And so the not yet aspect of that kingdom would be like in the millennium, but somebody probably holds to the army will say, no, not a millennium, because we're in the millennium, but this is in the new heavens and new earth. Essentially, right? Essentially, what you're saying, Kristen? Yeah, we we are in. I would say we are, um, and that's probably where we're different right there, kind of. Um, I would say yes, uh, we are in this reign. Christ is reigning at this moment, and uh, while He's reigning right now at this moment, um, it's still not a new. It's still not a new earth yet, new heaven yet. Um, but he's reigning now is that one day he's going to come um, when he, you know, when Satan, um, when he is destroyed forevermore and all those things happen and everything and all sin is put away. Um, that's when I would say then it would be completed at that moment. And that's when I would say everything is finished. And so it'll be a, then a realized, realized kingdom. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, <laughs> take it, Jeremiah. Sorry. So I, I think something that's important to this part in the conversation is when I look at Revelation 19, this is one of those famous passages where you have the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, linen, white, pure, following Jesus on these white horses. I definitely believe there's some imagery going on. And then verse 15 says, and out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And it talks about him ruling over them with his fury. And we see that ultimate judgment is happening. 
So for me, since I see the book of Revelation unfolding chronologically, I see Jesus returning here in Revelation 19, um, exercising his rod of iron and his judgment against the ungodly. And that's where we see then in chapter 20, this millennial kingdom setting up. So I'm curious to hear from Chris and Zach to see if they see Revelation 19 as Jesus's first coming, or if they see this as Jesus' second coming um, that precedes chapter 20, and if that's kind of a cyclical motion of, of how they understand the order of some of these events. We definitely gonna have to get into that. Um, we'll get into the question and answer as far as okay. I remember, remember uh, Jeremiah's question. Now, to kind of piggyback off of what Jeremiah just said, how we view this next question is probably going to dictate kind of how we all landed on these kind of positions in a sense. And that is, how do we view the bonding of Satan? There seems to be some sort of bonding going on here in the first three verses. Um, again, Revelation 20 says, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven. Now, a lot of people kind of, I guess, it's a controversial issue of who this angel is. I mean, is it Michael? Is it Gabriel? A lot of people, for the most part, would say, no, this is Jesus. But again, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. Now, how do you guys um, each interpret this binding? How does a pre-meal do it? How does the meal do it? How does a post-meal do it? So it's no particular order you guys want to go, but you guys, whoever speaks first can go ahead and go. <laughs> um, I, I'll go first <laughs> with, with the pre. <laughs> the pre comes first, I guess. Um, so very simply for me, since this is unfolding chronologically, the way that I viewed the binding of Satan, I would, I would say the terminology that Revelation 20 uses at, um, in verse, verse one says, holding the key in his hand, this, this angel um, basically puts Satan in the bottomless pit with a great chain and he is seized and he's bound, but they put a seal over him, verse three, threw him into the pit. And we'll get into probably the Greek word there, which is abyss and shut it up and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Now, when we look, when we compare that terminology with Mark three and the, the binding of the strongman, it seems here like not only is the strongman Satan and he is bound up, but he's thrown into a basement for a really, really long time here in revelation 20. So it seems like that is a different time period than um, Satan being powerless to Jesus at his first coming and then also having no power over the gospel going forth. But it seems like the language from Revelation 20 is that he is sealed up in the abyss. And so I believe that this is talking about a time period where the depravity of man is the only thing left to reject Jesus as he's bodily reigning with the saints. So I would, I would just see this type of binding as not only being bound, but put away in the base, the abyss, totally sealed up. And um, I, th I think the timing of where this is at is in the book of Revelation. This all kind of hinges on if this is a chronological flow or if it's more cyclical. Now, just to add on to what he said, um, again, I probably, so number one, I talked about this in my first episode, you guys remember this, I talked about like a case for a historic pre-mill. And then that kind of episode, one of the common misconceptions that a lot of people think when I think about pre-mill is that we wouldn't say the devil is currently bound. Now, I think we should define it how Jeremiah just said it in two different ways. There seems to be some kind of, something happened at the death of Jesus on the cross. You guys remember in Genesis 315, 
uh, God promised Adam and Eve that through the seed of you know Eve, there would be some kind of seed that would crush the head of the serpent. Well, if you guys don't think about snakes, you can cut a head off a snake and it'll still live for a period of time. Well, in some aspect, that's essentially what Jesus did to the devil. He defeated the devil at the cross. He cut his head off, but like right now, the devil is still squirming around. But he's an angel, so he's definitely, definitely very powerful. Now, uh, the text you use in Mark three and Matthew twelve about the the bind of the strong man, I believe right now, currently, the devil is bound in this sense that his power is limited. And he cannot keep the nations from coming into the church or coming to the visible church, which is known as spiritual Israel. Now. In the Old Testament, we know that the people of God, quote unquote, were the Jews for the most part, but there were some Gentiles that were able to be a part of Israel. So we see that Israel is not just defined simply by race, but God was still saving Gentiles even in that day. But for the most part, many of the nations were blinded by the devil. God was allowed it to happen. But at the cross uh, during Jesus' death, that's when he cut the head off the serpent. And now all these Gentiles nations are coming into the church in a large um, magnitude. Now here, kind of what Jeremiah just said, I see this binding, rather than being a limiting of his power, this seems to be like a complete removal of Satan from the entire earth, kind of how Jeremiah said. So I was, I was gonna say real quick again, that part that I read um, that, you know, it'll, he'll be sealed in the abyss so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. I think something that all the positions have to ask is, is Satan, is Satan deceiving the nations today? And when I start looking at what Paul and the rest of the apostles say in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter two, that says he works through the sons of disobedience. And I would say, you look at a bunch of these godless nations, they are still laying in the power of the wicked one that first John five says. So this to me is kind of getting at a, a big issue of what type of limitation does Satan have? And it seems like during the millennial reign, like you said, KJ, he is going to be not only bound, but sealed up and out of the picture. And that's where we get into hermeneutics and exegesis and, and really try to understand the flow of the book of revelation. So I think that's a good distinction though. What is, what is Satan doing as he's being bound? Second uh, Corinthians four says that the God of this age is actively blinding the eyes of unbelievers. First uh, Peter five says that he is roaming around like a roaring lion. And I like what you said. If we look in the old Testament, Satan has a lot of power, but even Rahab heard about Yahweh and his redemptive power. And she put her faith in him and he was saved. So there was, there's always been this proto gospel that has existed in the old Testament and that carried the power to save and Satan could not do anything about that. It's because that Christ has always been God and always been in control and God is working out his sovereign plan of redemption. Definitely, definitely, man. Um, who wants to go next? Mr. Zach or Creston? <laughs> yeah, I'll go. Okay. So, <laughs> the, uh, so there's definitely, Satan is definitely at work still, but here's the question. Can, is, can Satan's power overcome God's power? And we're all going to answer no to that. So the question is, does God rule and reign the people that he wants to reign? And I think we all agree with that. Acts 13, 47 um, says, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for salvation, the ends of the earth. Okay, right after that, um, in the very next verse, I think it's a pretty famous verse that we all know where it says, all who are appointed to eternal life do what? They believe. John 6, 37, all that the Father give me will come to me. So whenever we look at the binding of Satan, we know that 
it's not literal um, because Satan is a spirit being. So Satan's not a spirit being. And it says that his purpose is that he can't deceive the nations any longer. Now, if you look at the beast in the book of Revelation, I think it's fair to say that Satan is the one who is backing the beast. And if you look at all of the four kingdoms in the book of Daniel, it's fair to say that Satan is the one backing all of these kingdoms, and he is the one that is using them. But now, since Jesus has defeated, and the question is, did he defeat Satan on the cross or did he not? And I think we obviously would agree that he did, and we'll break down further into that. But if he defeated Satan on the cross, then Satan cannot deceive the nations any longer. Now, unless we want to say that Satan has more power and can overcome the elect, which we don't believe he can because Matthew says that it's not even possible that he deceives the elect in Matthew 24. Um, I think we're all in agreement there. But the question is, as far as the nations go, um, is, is God saving the nations? Yes or no? I believe that we have. I think you could point to Romans chapter 1 and say that he was doing it already in that day, that the gospel had spread all out and people were saved um, throughout the known world. So I, I don't think there's any doubt that Satan's binding does not mean that he is completely incapable. I mean, I would be all biblical and unbiblical to say that he's not deceiving the Nate, that he can't um, roar around and prowl for a roaring lion, but who's he seeking whom he may devour. Okay. So he's not, he can't devour the elect. That's why our salvation is so great in God. One of exclamation, man. I'm pretty sure um, my pastor here, Creston Thomas, is going to be in agreement with you. But um, Creston, you, uh, you want to add anything to that or how would you man, Zach, Hey, Zach was spitting bars, man. <laughs> hey, that was good, Zach. Uh, but let, let me let me add one thing to it. Um, I think uh, Jeremiah mentioned something about like Rahab and in, in, in the Old Testament. Um, you know, um, we, we, even Rahab. Um, for her salvation, um, the God in his sovereignty, um, God uh, used uh, the, the, the theocratic Israel, uh, that system, and many have to come through that system. Even Rahab had to, um, for her, have to keep those same um, uh, laws and everything, even under, under, the, uh, under this theocratical system. And so um, we saw this invisible church in the Old Testament so the church wasn't visible uh, in the Old Testament. It was always invisible. Like David, it was all part of this invisible church uh, that would say it's Christ, sola scriptura. Christ is the, you know, Christ alone. You know, and so it's always been Christ. Abraham, he looked forward to something greater. Uh, all of these things that look forward to Christ. And so even in the Old Testament, uh, even Rahab, we would say, well, well, Satan wasn't bound in the Old Testament. So him by, by him not being bound in the Old Testament, how did Rahab or someone else come into faith um, by him not being bound? Um, they came in through the, 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 the Mosaic system. And for them, that by faith, even though they was in that system, they had to keep the laws. They was actually considered as proselytization and things of that nature of Israel. But we see something new in the New Testament. Um, when Christ, um, you know, throughout his ministry uh, as a suffering servant, he comes in and Christ on the cross, he was put to death as a suffering servant, but when he was raised up, now he commissioned this church out. Now this church that used to be, say, this invisible church, now he brings about a visible church to the world. And what happened here? You know, why, you know, what, what happened with all these things taking place? The same time we see that we see that um, Christ has given all the authority and Satan at this time right here um, he's not having dominion over over 
his dominion now, in the sense of it's now, is limited now, bit time. Now, Christ has all dominion, but Satan has some, you know. I think um, Jeremiah mentioned a couple of verses how Satan still, you know, try to tempt us and do things here and, here and there. But one thing Satan is not able to do, Satan is not able to stop the elect from coming to Christ now to be a part of this visible church. And so now this visible church now is public and it's, and it's, and it's going forward in power that Christ has given them the power to go forward in. So we see this bonding, I would say the bonding as being that Satan now is, is limited on what he can do. Um, he cannot deceive those who God is calling to himself. And, and I, I love how it's, I love how he used the word abyss. And I love also, a lot of times before we get to abyss, we see the word ancient serpent. He uses serpent, devil, and Satan. He uses three words and everything to show you the, the magnitude of this judgment that is happening. That this what is happening right here that now God is about to um, um, pour his wrath out. You know, this is it's about to go down now, bit time now. And so, um, so God, hey, he bound him up for this thousand years, but eventually, it's when whenever he comes, you know, get free, God is going to judge him forevermore. And so, um, I can stop there. I can let me, let me stop there, but so that, that's kind of where I see the thousand years. Satan is bound and it's sealed. And I don't believe in the seal and the literal that his seal, you know, you put zip ties and everything over it. And um, now, you know, Satan can't do this and that. Um, I, I believe the seal, like I said, I think it's, it's sealed in a way of he's not able to do, like I say, deceive. And it tells us in a, he's not able to deceive the nations any longer. That's what it tells us. That's what he's still to do. He's not able to deceive us in referring to deceiving the elect from coming to Christ. And so, um, yeah. All right. I'm definitely got some questions for you, Mrs. <laughs> but um, as we get into our next question, um, how do, um, for a minute. How do you guys view the first and second resurrection? I know me and Kristen had a debate uh, my last season about theology, and me and him were going back at it about the first and second resurrection. But um, I guess we we'll start with, with you, Mr. Zach. How would you kind of view the first and second resurrection scene here? Man, I think this is extremely difficult, and I think this is possibly the best point for the pre-mill understanding uh, with the using of the word anastasis. Don't get too carried away now yet. <laughs> Come on, Zach, man, I'm rooting for you, man. And it, and it meaning physical resurrection, but in the words of Lee Corso, not so fast, my friend. <laughs> I think that I think the first resurrection is talking about Jesus resurrection. And I think that it is the first fruits and we are blessed to partake in the first fruits. And we know we've partaken in this first fruits of his physical resurrection, uh, Anastasis, because we've been given the spirit, which is the down payment of that. And then the second uh, resurrection will be the physical resurrection that um, everyone will go through, which I believe happens. Everyone saved and lost is resurrected at the same time so there's not a resurrection of the believers in first thessalonians 4 and then a later resurrection at the end of um revelation okay now Kristen, would you kind of differ on that or how, how would you kind of interpret it yeah the, the same way man um um for us resurrection in a sense of how we have resurrected from life um from death to life in christ been born again said in john 3 when Christ called us from a death, we've been dead in our sins. We've dead in our trespass. It brings us alive. We raised the life, raised this newness of life in Christ. Then eventually we're going to be raised again with Christ in eternity. And so, um, you know, with the death, you know, we you know the first death, 
Um, we was dead, like I say, we was dead. And um, the second death, um, um, I think Zach kind of hits it. I think I agree with Zach. Uh, what would you say about the second death, Zach? Or did you say anything about resurrection? Uh, second resurrection. Okay, being okay, the, okay. Being the general resurrection of, uh, yeah, of everyone at the end. So. Yeah, yeah. So I, I would be with Zach. Um, like I said, it's, it's a very unique passage. Uh, very, it's, it's very unique. Uh, but but I can do I do see um, you know this resurrection um, you know and throughout the gospels we see this resurrection and, and seeing that that Christ is going to come back and, and call us to Himself and we're going to join Him and so I do see a, a second resurrection so I, I would lean more with Zach on this one. All right, uh, Mr. Jeremiah, you got to come say that. And no, I'm just playing. But how would you view <laughs> this first and second resurrection, man? Well, I want to agree with Zach and Creston, that this is a interesting passage. And personally, I don't think this carries any special weight to any one view because my understanding of the first resurrection, I, I almost see this as saying, okay, well, this at least is pointing to the fact that there is a second resurrection. You have the, these two resurrections. And I like what Creston said, all throughout the gospels, you have some of the, the resurrection unto life. And then you got some of the resurrection of the just and, and, I see primarily two resurrections, one under life, one under death. Even Daniel 12 talks about these two types of resurrections where we differ as I believe these resurrections can happen in stages. Um, I was, I was looking at, you know, first Corinthians 15 and it doesn't seem like it necessitates there being a, uh, so when we look at the sheep and goat judgment, um, I think the primary takeaway is there's, there's two types of resurrection. So, Nothing in my mind says that there's there's not um, a, a hindering of that happening in various stages. So I, when I look at the first resurrection, I typically look at that as believers. Now, um, you know, whether we look into what a rapture looks like and the timing of, of Jesus's return, to me, those things, um, it's going to be different for those who've already died in the past versus to, you know, some people being alive at Jesus's coming. There, that might look a little bit different, but in my mind, all that fa falls into the category of the first resurrection, the resurrection on the life. And then I think at the end of it all, which could happen in, in nuanced various ways, there will be an ultimate resurrection unto death, unto judgment. And so I, I tend to take the simplistic view that this is talking about um, first and second resurrection, one under life and one under death. So KJ, would you differ with me at all in kind of looking at that? Um, yeah, so like again, uh, again, before I say anything, I'm kind of with Chris and, and Mrs. Zach. I kind of view like the entire book of Revelation as a symbolic book, but we know things in literature that we're able to interpret what symbolism was not. And so, you guys know what similes and metaphors are. We use those to kind of identify okay, this is symbolism, this is not. But John, what he does is two nine times out of ten, he tells you what these signs and symbols mean. Well, in here. I see no reason for us to use, I guess, or like to interpret these passages right here as symbolism because it all makes sense right here, if I'm making sense. But uh, John tells us right here who, in fact, these people are who are in the first resurrection. These are all the people um, of God who are participating in this resurrection. So let's say, for example, Adam, you know, Eve, you know, David, Solomon, all the people in the Old Testament, if, we're, if we die, you know, tomorrow, we'll all be rising and got our new bodies and we reign with Christ. And the verse says the martyrs, the people who did not take the mark of the beast. So these are all the Christians of all times 
participating in the first resurrection. So that's us today and also all Christians of all times, the entire church of God, spiritual Israel, reigning with Christ for a thousand years. Now the second resurrection, I would say that that's the general resurrection for the dead. All those who never trusted in Jesus, who never repented and turned to him for salvation, this is the people. It tells us here in the text too that these people, they um, went to hell. They experienced a second death. That's why John says, blessed is everyone who participates in the first resurrection. And uh, Paul talked about this too in Philippians. He says that um, he was trying to um, strive to obtain a special resurrection. Well, if we let the Bible interpret itself, kind of what Jeremiah said, all the passages that talk about a first and second resurrection or a resurrection of the just and the unjust, we're not given indicators of when they're gonna happen. We just know it's gonna happen. Well, if we kind of, I guess, let the Bible interpret itself, here, right here, it tells us there's a, a thousand years in between the first and the second uh, resurrection. And so I believe the first one is the just and the second is the unjust. But. Yeah, so the reason that I would disagree with that is because of Matthew and chapter 25, and I believe it's somewhere in the 30s there, about halfway down. It says that when, when Jesus comes back, that there's immediate judgment. OK, so if Christ comes back pre-trib rapture and raises up the believers and all their bodies and they go back to heaven with him, I don't know what your view of the rapture is. But then you've got a gap of a thousand years between Christ coming back, a resurrection of the dead and the judgment. And I don't think Matthew 25 gives you warrant to place that time there. I think it's cut and dry. And with First Corinthians 15, that he comes back, he raises people out of the grave and then there's a judgment to the death and the life. Um, that's my view, and I understand the difference, and I respect that, and I, I appreciate the conversation, and I enjoyed that well, part. Hey, uh, Zach, real quick, uh, I got a question. I'm trying to make sure. So, the first resurrection for you, Zach, is Christ's resurrection. Then we partake in that through belief. Okay, and KJ, would you agree with that? That part, the first? So, I would. I look at it as like um this is all belief like this is, this is a literal uh, anastasis is the greek word this is a literal physical resurrection that takes place when christ returns all christians of all times are participating in his resurrection in this sense that we're all reigning with christ for a thousand years all those christians at, at, at this at this first resurrection yeah okay and this is um i want to make sure so I'm, i know you mentioned david and then all the people that professed christ in the, in the old testament and, uh now will they be a part of this resurrection? So um, for the historic pre-mill position, I believe in the post-trib rapture. So like the church is not going to be taken out of suffering. They're going to experience this seven-year tribulation or however you want it, this suffering. And God will return at the end of that in a visible return. That's what comes for his people. Now, let's say, for example, this is probably not going to happen, but if Christ were to return tomorrow, everyone um, who has been dead of all time that's trusted in Christ, they will arise with their glorified bodies. And we who are alive today, we will get our new bodies in the rapture. But we will all be participating in that thousand, thousand year reign of Christ here on earth. But all those Christians who have been martyred for the faith or have been, who have died trusting in Christ, this is the first resurrection, a literal resurrection. So, so, okay. so the, the, uh, one, more, one more queen, Zach. So Zach, the second resurrection, what was yours on the second resurrection? I wanna make sure I The general resurrection of, the, of all the dead. So my understanding is that, Okay. so KJ, are you saying that like if I died, that my body would be resurrected around the throne with, with Christ now? Is that what you're saying? I'm trying to make sense of this. So 
again, I, I, we, we none of us know like when Christ is going to return, but like, and I don't know like if God works on time, for example. So like, if we die right now, I don't know like, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, judgment, like, like that. Yeah. But what I can say from this text is all those Christians of all times who have died, trusted in the Lord, they'll rise with Christ with their new bodies. But for us today, if Christ were to turn tomorrow, we get new bodies in the rapture, if I'm making sense. Yeah, no, no, I'm with you there. I just, my understanding is that that happens at the same time. And that's what I would be calling the second yeah. resurrection because the dead in Christ will rise. And then we who are alive and remain, we'll meet him in the air. Yeah. And then obviously we turn right around and come back and usher him into the kingdom. Don't go back to heaven, but that's just me. <laughs> go ahead, Jeremiah. So um, I like that Zach was talking about first resurrection would pre um, um, point to Christ first and foremost. I think I would strongly agree with that, but that would entail the ultimate resurrection that we receive in 1 Corinthians 15. So I would say that that's not happened. We've experienced a new physical rebirth, right? A resurrection in life and new creation. But I think all of us agree that we've not received resurrected bodies yet. So that's why I think absolutely that begins with Christ. Something else that Zach said, and this took me a long time to wrap my head around within a premillennial view, is when we talk about a type of rapture, to me, I'm totally not dogmatic on the timing of, of when that happens. But I would say Christ getting his bride is to be distinguished from his second coming. So it's not like a, a secret first come, or a secret second coming that no one knows about. And he kind of just kind of tiptoes back off the screen. I would say the snatching of his bride is, is to be distinguished from the second coming of judgment and ultimately setting up this millennial kingdom. So I think that's a nuanced difference that a lot of people will say, well, the rapture is really a, a secret second coming. I'd say really that's the, a taking away of the bride, not the second coming judgment. And I would agree with you on that. It's a taking away of the bride. But I think there is a clear passage as to when the rapture is going to happen. And it's Psalm... Mm -hmm in one <laughs> when he's all of his enemies are made his feet and then he comes back and pre he presents the kingdom see what i've done to the father and first mm -hmm. corinthians says that i was that was tongue-in-cheek about <laughs> i believe too, you know, uh, that passage we yeah i was gonna say that passage in uh second thessalonians well kind of the, the church and that the, i guess Thessalonians or whatever they were kind of like wondering you know if all you know christ said that we were experiencing this rapture or the second coming with christ Paul kind of equates the second coming of Christ and the rapture as one and the same event too. So that's why I kind of like lean more towards kind of Zach in that position. Um, so uh, if I could real quick too, I would like to read, uh, the, the, like I said, I believe John kind of tells us and it kind of explains the book itself. So in verse four in Revelation 20, he says, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of, the, of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who is a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and will reign with Christ for a thousand years. And so the, again, John tells that these people are all the Christians who have died for the faith. Specifically, he says that I don't know how you guys view this, but like for me, being a premier guy, I, I hold to like a seven-year tribulation. And so there's going to be Christians. Again, I don't believe in the preacher rapture. So the church is going to be going through suffering. 
and <laughs> they're gonna be going through suffering and they'll be getting killed for the faith. Well, part of people getting resurrected are those who die for the faith, but not just during this specific time period of suffering, all times, all ages, all creatures who die for the faith, who died trusting in Christ. John tells us they will rise with Christ and reign for a thousand years. And he says, this is the first resurrection. And the rest of the dead, those are all those who did, who died never trusting in Jesus. Anybody got it? Yeah, okay. It's good. <laughs> <laughs> and, and like I said, I, I don't want to take too much more time um, from you guys. We can talk about this uh, some other time. But um, so would anybody disagree with this? Let me throw this out there. I think you guys said it a million times already. So I'm going to throw it out there. The first resurrection is of the soul from death to life. The second resurrection is of the body, the new bodies. Like, I disagree with that. <laughs> yeah. Okay, nobody. Okay, everybody. So I say the first resurrection is we're born again, born again in Christ. The second resurrection is that when we get our, at the end, you know, when we get our new bodies in Christ, that's what I would kind of lean to. Now, you guys disagree with that? Yeah, like I okay. said, I feel like John tells us. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm on the fence there with that because I'm trying to play the anastasis of both sides, taking it taking yeah. that first resurrection to Jesus and taking it through that. But essentially, yeah, I'm going to have to say through somewhere or another that the new birth is part of that. So, yeah. Because sure. I was leaning more, cause I, like, for example, like first death, second death. This is where I'm kind of we're thinking through it. I would say to say two things here, either the first death, right? It representing um, those who are unbelievers, then unbelievers, the second death of the unbelievers, God judges them forevermore in hell. That's the second one for unbelievers. Uh, or on the other side of this is that um, the death represent for the ungodly, they die, it's, it's the death, the, the first death of the unbelievers when they die here on earth, then they get punished again in hell. And so that's what I'm kind of working through. I'm not really, I mean, I'm trying to work through it. But uh, I think you just said a minute ago, KJ, you said John said that clearly. I say John say it clearly or resurrection. Otherwise, <laughs> <laughs> so. <laughs> now, uh, but, uh, you guys carry on, man. I, I, I could, we can talk about this some other time. Now, we've arrived to like the question and answer time. So now the perfect opportunity for us to kind of ask each other questions. And I, I kind of want to ask um, you guys questions, um, Kristen and uh, Zach. How, so we all know the Greek word here. Hey, how you get to ask the first question, man? Why can't you <laughs> ask the first question? Go ahead, man. You want to, you can go. No, nah, go ahead. No, nah, no, nah, go ahead. We, we asked the first one on this episode. <laughs> so the Greek word for resurrection here is anastasis. Nowhere in the, everywhere in the Bible that the Greek word is used, it's always referring to a physical resurrection. So if we're going to interpret the first resurrection here, let's say symbolically to describing, you know, our first uh, resurrection, that is coming from death to life, then that means the second part, the second resurrection has to mean the same exact thing. We can't be like, this resurrection means it's a symbolic version and the other one is not. But how do you guys kind of explain that? Let me ask you this. If, so if you say that, if we say that the first death was a spiritual death, I think everybody agrees with that, okay? Then the second, then the, then the first resurrection can be a spiritual resurrection but i see the issue with anastasis but at the same time in revelation 20 when he says the first resurrection that's the correct me if i'm wrong that's the first time we see first resurrection as far as that goes um so i don't know if that was what christian was trying to go back to hey that the first death is spiritual so the first birth is spiritual and then the second the second yeah the death is physical so then 
resurrection will be physical. Yes, yeah. Th- that's what I was trying to get at. Yes. Okay. But I guess my, my question still kind of get because it, it leaves, I guess. So if the the first resurrection is symbolically, I guess, to be interpreted, then it means the second resurrection should be interpreted the same way. So if the first resurrection is interpreted symbolically as describing our being dead and coming to life, that means the second resurrection must be interpreted the same exact thing. The rest of the dead come to life. That's what John says here in the in the verses. How would you guys kind of deal with that part? If I'm making sense. But but not ne- but not necessarily, KJ. Um, not necessarily. I mean, just dealing with the type of literature we're dealing with, um, it, 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 can, it, can, it can show, because, I mean, re- the book of Revelation in and of itself, it's, a, it's climactic. You know, it brings everything in from the whole Bible, um, from the entire, all the rest of the books of the Bible, and it just throws everything in here. And so um, c- could it be a summation of both resurrections? I mean, we, we have seen the book play on both throughout the entire book. We have seen it talks about you know, physical kingdoms and the spiritual kingdom. So could it? I mean, isn't it the nature of the book? Uh, what, let somebody ask us a question, then I kind of come back and we'll talk about it more. I, I think you've got, uh, if you understand, like, maybe in the context of the early church about why this keeps getting brought up, is because they've got some some spiritualization of some things going on. I mean, you got Gnosticism and things of that coming into the church saying that, well, anything with a physical body is bad. And Paul is making sure that he verifies hey, no, there's going to be a resurrection of the physical body. So, and he makes that point in Colossians when he talks about that Jesus was raised from the dead uh, and he has a physical body. So I, I think that there's more of an emphasis on that than the first and second resurrection is. But like I said, the Anastasis point, I think is your best argument. Oh, okay. Let, let me let me chime in because actually, this is maybe where me and you, KJ, me and you, maybe see this a little bit different. Even though we're on the same team, I, I think this the simplest approach to the first and resurrection. I might would be close to Creston because I when Jesus says, "I am the resurrection in life," I definitely see that encompassing a spiritual reality. And I do think about us being dead in our sins and trespasses, being raised to newness of law, walk, uh, to walk in newness of life with him, Romans chapter six. But when I see in Revelation 20, what's more preeminent for me is the chronological flow of the book. So I would see this in telling necessarily that this, and this is where I agree with you, KJ, that this would be a physical culmination of what everything has been building up to. And I do think that's what uh, Daniel 12, all the mentions of it in the four gospels, um, talking about the ultimate point of the physical reality of what's been alluded to and already taken place spiritually. So it's funny, that's an aspect where I kind of, gre- and I like, I like what Zach said too, that obviously that first resurrection, Jesus would be first and we would be partakers in the first fruits of that. But to me, all that's going somewhere to that physical reality. Well, um, somebody else have a question too. They want to ask each other in this time period as well. I have two questions, ahead, uh, but I don't. I don't want to hog the time necessarily. But I do. I, I'm very curious to see how Creston and Zach would answer answer this. So, y'all are familiar with Jesus healing a man with a demon in Luke chapter eight, and this is also paralleled with Matthew chapter eight. So they said something interesting to Jesus when he cast them out. He says. Uh, the, the demons say, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? 
I beg you, do not torment me. And Matthew adds, before the appointed time. So I think, and this is where it cut me off if you disagree, but I think we would all agree that this is the before the time of judgment that is future. And so they not only have a right Christology that Jesus is the Holy One of God, but they have a good understanding of eschatology of future judgment. And so in verse 31, the, the demons begged him to not command them to depart into the, the abyss. And so contextually, it seems like Jesus honored their request and let them go into the pigs and they did not go into the abyss. I think we're still in agreement here. And when I look at the Greek word for abyss, it's the same word translated in the English in Revelation 20 as the pit. So this is where I'm really curious because the pre-mill says the, the demons were not sent into the pit. But Revelation 20 basically says that um, we're already in the pit bound here and now or Satan's already in the pit bound here and now. And I'm saying that seems to be a future judgment. So how would y'all make sense of the word abyss? being the same as the word pit in Revelation 20. I mean, I've heard, so you can take this to Christ's ascension um, and, and his conquering then. And I've heard it recently. I think it was Doug Wilson that said uh, that this happens at 8070. So, I mean, that's a great question. And that's something that I'm, that I'm studying out as to when this. So there, in my view, we've got this 40 year carryover between Pentecost and AD 70 and I'm and I'm trying to work out as to what binding happens at you know if it's at the ascension or if it's there's some future consummation at at 80 70 I mean I think it's a great question um man I that leads me to the point to say that I don't know would you say the abyss is not talking about the earth where we're currently living I don't want to speak to something that I haven't studied because gotcha. I gotcha. Gotcha. What about you, Creston? What do you think? Yeah, I want to jump in, man, but uh but I want to make sure, be honest, I didn't I didn't really um can you can you throw your question at me one more time? Maybe you can Oh yeah. I'll condense yeah, it down. It again. If we got time, okay, yeah, just shoot it at me again. So when we go to Luke eight and parallel with Matthew eight. The demons say, Jesus, please don't torment us before the appointed time. Don't send us to the abyss. And I feel like he honors that request. He lets them go into a herd of pigs. So I would say the demons understand that this earth where Satan is currently ruling and reigning, this whole world lies in his power, roaming around like a lion, is not the abyss. The problem now is in Revelation 20, if we say that the millennial kingdom is now here on earth, well, we have Satan being bound in the pit, which is the abyss and I'm saying that interpretation of Revelation 20 seems to conflict with the passage in Luke chapter 8. So I just want to, that's, so, I see so, a problem with that. What? So, so, um, so based upon Luke 8, um, it seemed like um, that abyss, what Jesus is going to throw him in is going to be this physical place or um, a place on earth. Is that kind of what you kind of? So I'm yeah. saying given Luke 8, it doesn't seem like the abyss is a physical place here on earth. It'd be a place of torment that they don't want to go to, which would not be here on earth. So now, now with, because I, I really don't, and I actually it might be because of my, my ignorance. Um, I'm looking at Revelation 20 as Satan being bound. 
um, him being bound, um, you know, where is he at spiritually? I mean, I mean, we can't, we don't see him, right? Um, something like spiritually, like he is bound and it's some type of spiritual way Satan is bound um, in a way. Um, could that same Luke 8 be in the sense of, hey, I'm going to bound them spiritually. I don't know if I'm just confusing there or maybe I can do some more study in it, but. Let me ask you a follow-up. Um, would ahead. you say yes. that is Satan bound, sealed up in the pit right now? Uh, yes. So why would the demons in Luke 8 say, please do not torment us before the time to come. Please do not send us to the abyss. Um, at this particular time in Jesus' ministry, um, um, for them, um, they're not in a sense of all-knowing. So they, they don't know exactly the time when Christ is going to actually be, you know, ascended to the cross. Um, they don't know when Christ is actually going to be crucified. They're going to have all dominion and things of that. And so um, for them, um, even though they see that, I think that's a remarkable picture. Even for Satan, um, he still know, and I think James 2 talks about this, that he knows there is a God, even in James 2. And so they right. know who Jesus is. They know his, he, they know his power, they know his strength. Uh, but when he came the first time, he came as a suffering servant. And so right then, though, he didn't, in a sense of in a climactic way, show all of his authority by casting him. I think all of that kind of happens at his actually um, his crucifixion. And so for them, they're saying, well, Jesus, don't throw me in there. But for Jesus, it's not the time appointed for the father anyway. And so for Jesus, throws him off the cliff. I mean, throws him, I mean, goes into the pit and jumps off the cliff. Um, I just think this is a picture of the father's working in this, the son is working in this, and the demon is not knowing exactly when it was going to happen. And so, um, I don't know if this is, I don't know if I'm all over the place with this, but, uh, but I'm thinking that, that it is going to be a point in time when Christ, uh, it was a point in time when Christ was actually, um, was victorious on the cross. That's when Satan became bound and what anticipated that? was Luke 8. Luke 8 let us know that day is coming, that you will be bound one day, but uh, y'all get a break today. Y'all go ahead and jump off the cliff, but you're gonna, you, 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 gonna, you got it coming pretty soon. So, so I don't know if there's a corny answer, man, but that's kind no, of no, I'm surveying it. I might need to do some more work in it. I, I appreciate that response, and I'll just close with saying this, that um, just to make sure I rightly understand your position, when they say don't torment us before the time, you're saying that time of torment is Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and so the torment is kind of saying them being bound in that spiritual sense after the gospel is going going forth. I might have a lot of loopholes in there, but I mean, that's just okay. Going I, I think that was a good answer. Now. Yeah, based on what we're talking about now, that's kind of probably what I would lean at. And um, if you're free to push on me, and and I would love to, you know, um, rethink what I what I just said. I'm Jeremiah. I'm having a hard time with the understanding. Like, because I'm seeing that these demons and Satan, that th these are spiritual beings, and I'm having a hard time with them being bound in a physical abyss. So that's that's my, and like I said, maybe it's ignorance with lack of study in that subject, but that's my issue with it. Sure, I, and I, I appreciate that too, and I'm still learning and growing in this. While I was looking at the Greek word for abyss, it brought up another close Greek word for Tartarus, which brings up in Second Peter chapter 2. And it seems to be like a subterranean within Sheol of a place designated for demons. That's why Second Peter 2 and Jude talk about a special place for demons. 
And like I said, I don't want to be dogmatic. And my understanding of this torment would be a future eschaton of judgment. And they feared that. In the context, they have a right Christology. And it seems to me like they understood all the Old Testament judgment passages that's awaiting them. So I think the pit, the abyss, is a spiritual reality that actually exists, but it's nowhere here on earth. So that's just that's just my position. Yeah, cool. So but, I would but I don't, like- I don't think I, I disagree with that. Um, I mean, on earth, I can't see I disagree with that. Um, but see what a problem what Jeremiah is getting at is if this abyss, if you guys will, I don't know if you guys have all read the book of Revelation, but in Revelation chapter nine, one of the judgments, I think it's like one of the the trumpet judgments. Um, there's an angel who comes down who he has the keys of the abyss and he opens it and it talks about demons coming out of the abyss. So that means prior to the opening of the abyss, things that are in the abyss are, are unable to like be upon the earth. Then he's mm-hmm. going to open to abyss and the language is used in Revelation 20, Satan is thrown in that same abyss that those prior demons were unable to kind of access the earth. That's kind of what Jeremiah is getting at. But, but, but I'll go like what Zach was saying is, that, I mean, we're dealing with a literal key in a, a literal federal prison or something, you know, he's in. You know, I think we kind of can, but I think dealing with spiritual things, I think it's still, it don't have to, you know, you can use spiritual things and not, you know, be on a physical earth, if that makes sense. So, yeah, so I'm having a hard time as well seeing that, you know, by them being bound, they, they can't be on the earth. I think by being spiritual, I mean, I think you still got freedom for it still to be for him to kind of open up the abyss and he can kind of roam back on the earth and, and be around the earth. Um, um, I don't know, man. I actually, I'm, I'm still working through it. Now I had a question for um, maybe if everybody wants to kind of answer it, you guys can. Um, so the nature kind of revelation, like I said, I believe like, you know, my perspective is like, I view it more of as a recapitulation, like telling the same story, but each chapter, it's kind of building off one another, but it's telling the same story with different vantage points. But in chapter 19 and 20, I'm sure me and Jeremiah will both say this. We kind of view those sequential. But even, even if we don't, I don't know if you guys say, we kind of believe this. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians that there is an actual real life man known as Antichrist, the man of lawlessness. When Christ returns, he will destroy the Antichrist, physically, as an actual physical person that's named the Antichrist. So it will fall in the nature of this book of Revelation. In chapter 19, Jesus Christ does, in fact, kill the Antichrist, the beast, who John tells us in Revelation 17, who that is. So if this is right now, currently the millennium, that means the Antichrist has also been defeated. But the man of lawlessness, by no means has he come yet in the degree that which Paul states in 2 Thessalonians. So how would you kind of deal with that? I think you're using a word and taking it that's never used in the book of revelation and you're placing it in the book of revelation. So, I mean, anytime we think about, um, I mean, antichrist in first John two, it's a spirit of antichrist. So it's a false teacher that rises up in the earth. I mean, in the church, the beast in revelation is a political entity. So, um, I mean, I think in revelation, man, correct me if I'm wrong here. I believe it's 13, um, where it talks about the antichrist and it says, let him who has understanding, uh, pretty much pay attention that the number is, 666 and using the way that they use their stuff i mean you spell out neuron kaiser then you're going to come up with 666 but i mean that makes sense for me to be talking about him to be looking in that i would say that the thessalonians passage is talking about uh, someone else a previous um 
ruler at the time. But yeah, I, I don't think there's any connection to taking Antichrist and placing him as the beast. Uh, I don't think that that word is used anywhere in there. Do you don't mind if I read that passage too in Thessalonians? Um, Paul talks about again, um, he says, let no one in any way deceive you for we will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object and worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember while I was still with you, I was telling you these things and you know that what restrains them now. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's taken out. Then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with his breath. Now, the reason why I correlated that to Revelation 19, because that's exactly what happens in Revelation 19. This same physical person that Paul's talking about, who is the Antichrist, is the same person that Jesus kills um, when he returns. That's kind of what I was kind of dealing with. Well, your, your problem with that is, is that it says that he is already restraining. So if he's already restraining in Paul's day, then he's talking about somebody that's in Paul's day. He's not talking about somebody at least 2,000 years in the future. So um, I think you make some good points, Zach, um, especially when you brought up 1 John 2, that there's a spirit of Antichrist already among us, that spirit of the age that Ephesians 2 talks about. Now, obviously, I lean heavily towards where KJ is coming from, but I believe there can be a spirit of Antichrist being manifest in so many different ways that are always anti-gospel. Now, yeah. what's interesting is when you do look at the book of Revelation itself and how it, it I mean, my view is really the context allows us to define the terms that it's using. And what's really interesting in Revelation 16 is we see an unholy trinity in verse 13. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits. Now, I get that this is a highly apocalyptic book and there's a lot of prophetic language symbolism and all that. But it is striking to me when we do get into the millennial kingdom at the end when the, when the beast or the, the dragon is released again that we see the language that's used and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur and where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So Zach, I agree in the sense that in Paul's day, there was a spirit of antichrist. There was the spirit of antinomianism, um, of Gnosticism and all these things. It's almost like Satan is trying to find, a false prophet, one to totally, because when you look in church history, like Antiochus, Antiochus Epiphany, that dude was a type of antichrist. Nero. But we, 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 and Nero and all these men, but did they necessarily meet all the qualifications of what might be something in future? These things are hard to understand. So I think you're both looking at really good principles because I think there can be a spirit of antichrist and that that culminates in something physical. So we kind of get this merge of the spiritual and the physical merging together. And that's kind of where I come from in a, a futuristic, I think Jesus is ruling and reigning now, you know, um, by means of the Holy Spirit in the church, and then he will return bodily to set up that kingdom. So there's a lot of points of overlap there, I think. Yeah. I got I, a, um, a quick, go ahead, Zach. I'm sorry. Go ahead. But. No, go ahead. Go ahead. You're fine. No, 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 no. Go ahead, man. So I was just going to say my thoughts on the unholy trinity. Um, it would be Satan and then the beast is Rome. And then it says that the harlot sits on uh, the beast. And I take this false prophet um, to be this harlot who is this old Jerusalem uh, who didn't 
who didn't accomplish the task. So Isaiah 121 says, behold, my faithful city has become a harlot. Um, so I, I think we're coming at it from just such a different mindset about the way we're, we're thinking and getting there. Um, and obviously we can track with one another. You probably track with my view better than I track with yours on that. Um, but that, that's all I was going to say. on. Yeah. Um, quick question. Um, I, I haven't, I know some guys talked about this before. Um, like at the, um, um, when Christ returned, right. His second coming, uh, would death still be, be possible for death? I mean, would people still die? Um, <laughs> that's kind of your question um, yeah but people go be ahead. able to still die go, go ahead i'm sorry this together, <laughs> so yeah me i want me and kj both to kind of answer this and i'll try to i'll try to be brief so you got to think there, there's deeper rooted issues in my view because i see revelation unfolding chronologically so when i look at revelation 20 I do see death i really see this as a mirror of isaiah chapter 65 where there is old age once again and there is death now when i look at first corinthians 15 how death is no more it's funny i really do view that as a spiritual death is no more for those who are in christ but when he comes back to rule and reign this is phase one of jesus setting up his eternal kingdom and i really do see in revelation chapter 19 this is a question for y'all if we ever if we have time to is i do see revelation 19 being jesus's second coming which precedes Revelation 20, where then he then sets up his kingdom. So um, back to what you said, I see death happening in the millennial kingdom. I just don't see it in the eternal state in chapters 21 and 22. Kind of go alongside of that. Um, I don't know how you guys would view this. Uh, like if you guys, would, I, I don't know, basing this on Revelation 19, it tells us that when he, he comes, Jesus Christ, he kills only the Antichrist in his kingdom. It doesn't say that he destroys like all unbelievers. So that's just one perspective that, you know, some people in historic premium position will kind of hold to. That's what it says right here in Revelation 19, that he only destroys the beast in his kingdom and all those who are at war with him. Now, you got to look in Zechariah 14. We see there is um, Jesus Christ. It tells us that he's here on earth, but it also tells us when it's time for him on earth, there's people... Uh, who are like kind of still lost in a sense. You guys can look at Zechariah 14. So that's another, exp I don't have time to kind of talk about everything. Also with Jeremiah hinted at in Isaiah 65, how um, I think it says, I'm paraphrasing, to be alive at age 100 is considered to be young, but it tells us that, you know, death is still possible, but like that can't possibly not happen in the new, new heavens and new earth. How can somebody die in that? Cause we all know no one can die in that estate. So it can't be there. So it must be possibly in the millennium, people are still able to die. Now I'll just give you guys possibilities. The last one. The last one. Your, the last your problem. One. Your problem with that is the beginning of the passage states, "Behold, I create a new heaven and a new earth." So that doesn't. I don't. Zach think knows. Works. Zach knows my rebuttal to that. Yeah. <laughs> um. So another thing too, like in uh, Zechariah, I believe it's twelve. Like I don't know how you guys view this. You know, as far as you know, Jews, you know, being you know restored all those things, but Zechariah 12, I think it's 12 or 13, talks about when they see him again, they will mourn for them, basically who they, who they killed. So I'm not sure, like I said, this is a position. Um, some say that like when Christ returns, all those, he returns to Jerusalem and those Jews, as our Romans 11, 25 states, they'll be saved. And I'm not talking about every single Jew will be saved, but we do know that 
all of what is it? You guys learned the past states. Yep. All the Jews would be saved in that sense. Like, you know, all those Jews were part of the elect. Um, I don't know, like, if they're caught up in the rapture when he returns or, like, they actually see him and they get saved. I don't know. Like I said, I don't know if they enter into the kingdom without the glory. I, I don't know. But the last one I would say is, like, we know that, like, babies, for example, they're not. Um, Paul tells us in Romans that we're all judged for our actions that we commit in the flesh. And so a baby, for example, even though they're born in original sin, for example, they can be judged just for that sin and go to hell. But it's true in God's character that he possibly like, wouldn't kill a child. I'm not talking about age of accountability, but I'm talking about babies. He wouldn't kill babies because we see it, he hates the death of babies. And so it's just one character. It's a possibility that when he returns, he may destroy all unbelievers, but is it a chance that the kids who are left here because there, there's babies right now, right? Christ returned today. He will have to kill babies, but we know from his grace and his kindness that he doesn't do it today. So could these babies enter the millennium but not have glorified bodies? That's just kind of a different perspective. But Yeah, anybody that doesn't have a glorified body and say they're saved in the millennium, where do they go? Because they can't be around the throne. <laughs> He's on the earth. <laughs> so I, I think... I think that's one of the hardest questions for the premillennial position to answer is, okay, if there is death in the millennial kingdom, what happens? And I would just say, we're not told. And for someone that says, well, that seems pretty ridiculous. I would say there's been more ridiculous things happen in the Bible. So it's just pure speculation. I mean, I, I think that's, you know, no problem um, for God. You know, if, if someone dies in the, the millennial reign and then they're, they receive their immortal bodies. But um, yeah, I think the, the infant babies dying, um, I, I think, you know, we, we trust the just judge of all the earth to do right on those types of questions. So KJ, um, I was going to say, I'm, I'm curious to hear Creston, Zach, and you about is Revelation 19 talking about the second coming or first coming? The second. I can jump in there. Um, like I say, I'm I'm just, you know, average, you know, Joe. So I, I'm pretty sure I get, I'm gonna get this wrong. But um, <laughs> I, I guess uh, for me, I see it as, um, you know, occasionally uh, use the word re recapitulation. I can't even say it. I, I didn't even have English down yet, so I can't even say that word. Um, but um, I see it more of a um, some way. Some people call it like a more of a chiastic structure there, and also I see it. Even before then, I see more of a um, the whole book set up like this parallelism, you know, this parallelism. And I think it's a reversal here at the end of 20 through 22. And I think it was 17 to 19. Um, throughout these different parallelism was happening. You always see like the first couple of them, I think the second, the third type of series that is parallelism. Um, I think like from chapter four to chapter seven. Um, you deal with this, you know, this suffering of the Christians. Then Jesus comes back, judge the world, and and he takes them to, you know, for them, they're going to be in his kingdom forever. But here at the end of the book, we see it backwards. I see 20 as Jesus, you know, in the sense of finna give, defeat this, this Satan. He's going to defeat him. Then the new kingdom is going to go into the new kingdom. So what happened at the end of 19? 19, I would say that this is Jesus' second coming. I would say that Jesus' second coming, that Jesus is actually judging the nations. And so he's he's on a roll. I mean, he is this new, I mean, he's coming in, and um, Muhammad Ali, right after he, you know, had to step down from Boston, had to come back, 
time to get it time to time to come back and clean house. And I think what Jesus is doing now, he get rid of the 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 the, uh, the dragon, he get rid of the beast. Now he's gonna get ready to get rid of the actual Satan. And so, um, and what happened is, so that, that's kind of what I'm seeing here. He's going through and getting getting rid of all of them. But at the end of this, we see Jesus come back here at the end of 19. Um, I don't see it as um, Jesus comes back and this is not the final. I see it as another picture of the final stage there in 19. Yeah, so I see 19 as the first coming and his destruction upon Jerusalem. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Let me drop the bomb here on you, boys. Um, so I see it as his first coming. And then in chapter 20, we see the establishment of the millennium. Now, you've got a serious issue with, if you take the book of Galatians, you've got the Jews trying to take these Gentiles and bring them back. So as long as that temple's standing, you've got a serious issue with the new Jerusalem marching forth. So what I think you see is the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 in chapter 19, verse 20 talks about the binding of Satan in the millennium discussing this phase. And now we see that this is going to be, so you've got Satan bound and now you've got old Jerusalem, the harlot out of the way. So the new pure bride can come on the scene who is described in chapters 21 and 22. And I would, the reason I would partly also go with that, well, I think 21, it has to be talking about not the eternal state is because you have an invitation to drink from whoever wants to, whoever's thirsty, let him come drink. And then it says he who overcomes. And then it lists all the sins. There's no need to be overcoming sins. If this is the eternal state and you see the exact same parallel in Isaiah 65. And I think they're beautifully married together. Wonderful, man. I want to ask you guys a quick question. Um, what is the devil doing right now? Um, I'll, I'll go first. I think he is not bound and he is deceiving the nations. <laughs> and I think he is, he's tempt, he's continually accusing the saints. I think he'll continue to do that into the future. I think he is the great tempter. He is, um, he is at war with Christians. And so a lot of these principles we agree with, obviously we disagree on some of the timing, but you know, he's the great enemy of God and the saints and the church. So we do not fight against flesh and blood but against the principalities and powers of darkness so we he is the enemy um not people that disagree with this unbelievers they are the battleground but they are not who we are warring against so i think it's it's those of us that put on the the body armor of god that are equipped with god's truth and his gospel i'm going to sound very post-millennial here but we need to go forth and trust in the power of the gospel to change lives <laughs> Uh, before you guys answer real quick, oh, we got about three minutes left, but I don't see like, in a, I don't think the devil has ever been able to like stop the gospel from going forward. Yes, he had like the rain in the Old Testament as far as the nations, because God was allowing that. But at any point in time, I don't think the devil has ever been able to stop anyone from coming to gospel because God is, the devil is God's devil, as Luther would state. But how would you guys kind of talk about, it's like we're defining bound another way. The text does say that so he will not bind the nation or deceive the nations, but he's thrown into the bed. That's why he's unable to do that. But how would you guys kind of talk about in two minutes? <laughs> Chris, I'm waiting for that point where we get to ask our questions too, KJ. Uh, I was waiting, y'all. I was waiting, y'all. <laughs> um, man, I just, I just think that he's bound in respect that he can't deceive the nations. I mean, I think John describes it clearly um, as as to what the purpose of his binding is. We know that he's still seeking whom he may devour, but he can't devour the elect uh, because Christ's atonement will not be undone on the cross. 
Yeah, yeah, I uh, I take it from my, I know a good theologian friend of mine, Khalil Jones. Uh, he always says that it's symbolic until it actually tell you what the actual scripture. Whenever John tell you, when take something literal. So I, I take what Zach said. With I pretty much take from what KJ always say is that uh, it's symbolic until you when he tells us what it with the literal meaning of it. And he tells the literal meaning is that he's bound, so he wants to see the nations. And so, um, um, go ahead, Zach. I think oh, go ahead. John. One more thing. KJ saying that, but. <laughs> One more thing I think that he's doing, he's causing the church to believe in this pre-trib rapture, so we sit around and stow up and wait for the rapture instead of fulfilling the Great Commission. So. Oh, hey, hey. Oh. Post-trib over here. With the church. So Zach made a good point that I agree with, that Satan is bound in the sense that he can't deceive the elect, but I think, Zach, you would agree that he couldn't even do that in the Old Testament before the resurrection, Jesus' yeah. resurrection. I think there's a clear I think there's a clear distinction between the ability to bring the Gentiles in. Um, you see this with Peter as he's hesitant, as he's witnessing to folks, and then he draws back and Paul calls him out on it. Um, you can see that God has to give him a dream in Acts 10 when he's in Joppa. So, so but you would I just want everybody to hear, though, but you but Satan could not deceive even the the elect in the Old Testament, though. No, but I, I think it's clear in the Old Testament that God's purpose was that he was only going to reveal himself because in chapter yeah. uh, 23 of Matthew says, look, I gave you the prophets, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you stoned the prophets. I, mm -hmm. You're the one the feast days and the ceremonies too. And then he says that the Gentile nations are going to flow up to the mountain. I believe mm -hmm. that may be chapter 11. So there's a clear distinction in my view that the Gentiles are going to be coming into this thing. Um, I wanted to... I understand what you're saying. No, I don't yeah. that there could be any of the elect could not have been deceived, but I think Satan did deceive as a whole, the nations and that's evidence mm -hmm. by Daniel's four kingdoms. Yeah. So myself that, with you guys too. That, that's a good point of agreement, even across the different views that we all agree that even Satan. So I believe Mr. Zach, you had a couple of questions too. So now's the time, man, for those questions. <laughs> the flow is yours, man. <laughs> all right. I appreciate it. Hey, the uh, one question I have, and this is just stating from where I'm at as far as this goes, is putting the book of Revelation in Daniel's last week. I mean, that's my major issue. I, my understanding mm. is that you guys are going to say that, hey, we're talking about something that's Daniel's 70th week, and I'm taking this as something that doesn't have anything to do with um, the book of Revelation. So that final seven years, because Daniel seven twenty four, Daniel nine twenty four says that seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. So, what do you guys say to that about bringing Gentiles into what Daniel's um, city is, Jerusalem, and what Daniel's people are, the Jews? Well, and, and let, let me give you guys um, Jeremiah and KJ a little bit of time to, to, to work through this. But let, let me say one thing, Zach. Um, <laughs> I always have found this so difficult. It's like I got to pour so much in there. And so yeah. uh, so that always, and so that's when I come in and, and, you know, a lot of things, say, first century, a lot of things, how things were related to the first century. So I have struggled with what, what you're saying, trying to put all those things together. So I don't have anything to say about what Daniel, because I kind of really like, man, I feel like it's so forced when I try to put it in into this, contest right here a revelation uh what's happening here in um say revelation 20 and other passages so i'm gonna uh jeremiah and kj run off with this one. 
I was going to say the first thing is that the Gentiles are God's people, God's people as well. Even though God dealt with the Jews in the Old Testament, we are a spiritual Israel. Galatians 3, verse 16, Paul tells us that if you believe in the God of Abraham, you are heirs according to the promise. So is it possible that, that you know, the, the Jews are also making up Israel as well, the spiritual aspect? But Daniel 9, verse 27, he says, and he will make a firm covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and the grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. Now, the reason why many, uh, I don't know how Jeremiah views this, but the reason why we kind of hold this to, uh, I guess, a future event, Jesus and the Olivet Discourse, he points back to this event, saying, when you see this sign, this is the time of the second coming of man that I'm going to come again. I'm paraphrasing here. And then we also know if you par parallel all the things in Daniel, you know, the 1260 days, 1290 days, this is exactly what John is doing in Revelation, talking about this same person that G was talking about, the Antichrist. So that's kind of my perspective. What would you say, Jeremiah? So interesting verse in Revelation that talks about there being a time period of 1260 days. And, you know, I, I agree with Zach and Creston that when you read Daniel only, there's a lot of questions. And so my viewpoint of where I'm currently at today, leaning premillennial, it definitely is a holistic look of the entire scripture. Because I think there's a lot of dual prophecy going on in the Old Testament. Me and Zach talked about that earlier. There's a lot of point of agreement and a, yeah, um, agree. a dual, a dual yeah. prophecy aspect. So the way that Revelation seems to be talking about the, the 1,280 days in Revelation 12, um, it, it's mentioned a few times, it seems like this fits within a seven-year scope and halfway in between um, that middle point. Like there, if there was a, a tribulation time of seven years that Israel had not experienced, what well, seems like this, this 1,260 days is talking about a mid breaking point right in between and for me when i look at revelation with daniel I, I it's not hard for me to see that 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 last seven years has not occurred now what am i conceding to well you have to say well the set the 70th week which is a representation of 70 years i would say that that last seven years has not happened yet but like I said, these are things that I'm willing to, um, to you know, continue to look at and study. So maybe in turn, how would y'all see the 1,260 days in Revelation? I had one quick thing to add to before they answer that. Like verse 24, it starts off with 70 weeks have been decreed for your people, your holy city, mm -hmm. to finish transgression, to make an end of sin, and to make atonement for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness. And then he says to seal up vision and prophecy, and anoint the most holy place. So is it possible some of those things haven't happened yet? Christ hasn't brought in everlasting righteousness and he hasn't stood up all the prophecies as far as like revelation, we view it as a futuristic sense, but those things haven't happened yet too. So is it possible that the last week uh, is um, revelation in a sense, that 70 year period? So just for, I don't know how familiar your audience is with post-millennialism, but so what I would say is that that three and a half years is talking about the sixth month, which is Ab, in the year 66, and that three and a half years goes through 8070, which that lines up perfectly, uh, exactly. So that's where I would place that piece from Revelation. But you said in 20, in Daniel 9:24 that God's people were also uh, the Gentiles, but he's not talking about God's people. He's talking about your people, Daniel. 
So he's not, and if you were going to use that hermeneutic, then you would also have to say, which I believe to be true, that the Gentile, the church age, is also the new Jerusalem. So if, if you're going to use that and take that to be the city and the people straight across. But when you use 927, all throughout Daniel 9 from 24 on, you see this A-B pattern about, you know, seven weeks till the restoring of the wall. Um, then another 62 weeks until you get to the Messiah. Then the he that confirms the covenant is Jesus Christ. Well, when does he do that? When he's anointed. Only a priest can anoint anyone. John the Baptist's daddy was a priest. John the Baptist is a priest. John baptizes Jesus in the year 27. Jesus dies three and a half years later. Um, that's halfway through the week. What does it say he did in the middle of the week? Brings an end to sacrifice and offering. We know God didn't accept any more sacrifices after that because the veil was rent. And then the gospel goes to the Jews for another three and a half years. Peter has the dream in Joppa, which is the same place that Jonah fled to Tarshish. So saying the gospel goes to the Gentiles then. Yes, you need yeah, heard even, even Zach, um, I mean, even the picture of Gabriel bringing him this news and Gabriel coming back and, and telling them, you know, guess who reveals it to, um, I guess what, Mary or, or, uh, or uh, Joseph, you know, Gay, uh, Gabriel comes back again. And you see um, that how this text kind of, kind of, um, you see a lot of those fulfilling things in the life of Christ. When it's coming and everything during those time, you know, count to 70 weeks, it comes comes right at, right there at, like I said, the life of Christ. Uh, but also with Jeremiah, what Jeremiah was saying too is it is a lot of, you know, um, kind of twofold prophecies that make sense. You know, yeah. sometimes it means this, sometimes it means this. Um, but it, it does for me, like I say that in my ignorance, when you try to fit Daniel in, Daniel 9 in till, you know, to the eschaton. Right. Um, I, can, I, I, I see it fits very well. The puzzle pieces fit very well in how Zach just described it and actually in the life of Christ. Um, I mean, in the life in the first century and in the, in, 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 in the birth of Christ, all of that kind of fits very well, but it seemed like it's just a little bit more happening. I'm not counting it out at the end, but it seemed like it's just very hard for me to kind of put that in there um, at, at the end for, for myself. Yeah, I understand. One other thing I want to press is in Matthew. I think Matthew 24 in the Olivet Discourse is, man, if not Daniel 7, 13, and 14, Matthew 24 is probably, I think, would be my strongest position for post-millennialism. So when you said that the he was talking about the abomination of desolation that would be um, made by this future Antichrist, well, Jesus, in Luke's parallel passage, Matthew's writing to Jews and Luke's writing to Gentiles. In the parallel passage in Luke 21 in chapter, uh, chapter 21, verse 20, uh, Luke says it this way, when you see the army surround the city. So in that parallel passage, I, I think there's a clear carryover to what Jesus was saying the abomination of desolation was. And he says all, these, all of these things must happen in this generation. Um, and he says it like two or three times throughout that. So I'm just curious as to what you guys would do with those things having to happen in that generation. And Jesus saying that the, the desolation coming to make desolate would be Rome surrounding the city or the army surrounding the city. Let me say that. I believe, um, I think Luke, he was the one that wrote Acts. So he like, he knew, like he, he lived in a time of like 70 AD, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. And so he kind of like, once Jesus kind of foretold that Olivet Discourse, he was relating that to kind of like the Gentile. This actually did take place. This is what Jesus was talking about. Um, I don't know how like everyone views out of discourse. Like I would be partial prejudice in, in that text, not as far as my eschatology, but in that text, certain, certain part of those things is described in 70 AD. But when it gets to the abomination of desolation, 
in, in Matthew strictly because Jesus knew the Jews would know what he's talking about, talking about Daniel because they had the law. But there was a guy, I can't remember his name right off my head, that he partially fulfilled that in 70 AD. But I, I think the truth fulfillment is the one who will come in the end and do the same exact thing. That's kind of my point perspective on that, Mr. Zach. Okay, very well. So, um, I, you know, I, I really appreciate the, the all, of, all of that discourse in Matthew 24 and, and Mark. And I was going to tell you earlier, Zach, that one of the most attractive things that I like about the opposing position from, from Daniel 9 and Matthew 24, for me, it's almost out of pragmatism. So to me, that's not the guiding principle in hermeneutics. But I've thought about the, the benefit if Daniel 9 really is prophesying, you know, Jesus's death. Well, that, that's a wonderful apologetic tool to show people that years and years, like Isaiah 53, 700 years plus before Jesus' earthly ministry. Well, that's just another strong text to be like, hey, the Bible made strong prophecies that Jesus, no one else could fulfill. And then in the Olivet Discourse, if Jesus is talking about himself, specifically at 70 AD, well, that's a strong apologetic tool in terms of prophecy. So I'm conflicted internally because those are such strong principles. But I wonder, and we may not have time to get into the nuances here, but I wonder if there's certain details in Daniel 9 and in the Olivet Discourse that hasn't happened yet. And if that is the case, if, if we get into some of that, then I'm thinking, well, at least we, like Preston said earlier, we do, we could understand things in terms of dual prophecy. So I just want to say that these are, are very great passages to go to that all views at some point have a lot of explaining to do for sure. Yeah. yeah. So one, one view you guys mentioned on about the church being snatched away and fulfill me if I'm wrong here and KJ, this might be where you're talking about. You take a partial preterist view. I don't know. But in the Olivet Discourse, when it says that it'll be like it was in the days of Noah, two will be in the field, one will be taken, two women will be at the milk grinding, one will be taken, the other one left. Do y'all take that to be talking about the rapture, or do you take that to be a preterist position? I will have to uh, go to the text to kind of – I can't remember right off my head so, Jesus gets into that, but I do know – oh, you go ahead, Jeremiah. Well, I was going to say, I'm, you know, me and KJ will probably differ in terms of the rapture because my position more leans on a chronological view of Revelation. But that passage you went to, Zach, I don't personally go to to push for a pre-tribulational rapture. I think that's more in terms of judgment, honestly. So I don't think a rapture really rests on. I actually do not think that verse is talking about a rapture. Very well. To your delight. <laughs> just yeah thank you because i was going to pin you on if it's in the days of noah it's not like the left behind movie you know exactly and and you know i i don't want anybody to take an eschatology view based on a movie now if the movie did do a good job of something that can be derived from the text great but we should go to the scripture and i, I loved how kj said in a previous episode that scripture trumps history history is not a hermeneutic so we don't go to necessarily the patristic writers, the early church writers or commentaries, all those things are fallible, especially uh, the left behind series. So don't have an eschatology, eschatology based on a movie. So I agree with you, Zach. Yeah. KJ just spent a stimulus chat, man, about the whole series, man. Look behind the bookshelf. Oh, my goodness. 
Now, I have one last question. So, like, I just want to make sure I get clarity. So, like, we're all in agreement. I think Jeremiah was trying to press this question a little bit earlier. He said that the devil has never been able to deceive the elect of God. Now, us three, we're probably, like, we're in agreement on it in this point. The devil is bound because power is limited. He is not able to deceive the nations like he did in the Old Testament. We get to the New Testament. We already know this, but we get to the New Testament. Is Christ, not Christ, is the devil still able to deceive people who are saved, not from being saved, but just deception in general, if I'm making sense. As part as the elect falling away? Not, you know, so like he can never do that, but like, is he still able to like deceive them in any way? Not as far as salvation, but in any way. Man, I don't know. I think that's a great question. Um, and, and I think even obviously me coming to, you know, what I feel is a, is, you know, more learned understanding of biblical theology. You know, I don't know if that's my lack of study or if that's a hindrance of Satan or things that, you know, that are in my life. Um, I, I don't want to say that Satan can't do anything to the church in any way. If that was possible, then, then John couldn't have written about a spirit of antichrist that's rising up. I mean, we know that wasn't from God. Uh, but at the same time, if it's, you know, if it's filled of true believers, then, you know, even though Satan can have an effect on our lives, that our sanctification will continue and um, that, that the church will remain strong. So I, I don't want to say that Satan can't do anything to believers, but obviously we agree on, you know, reform theology in that aspect. What would you say, Creston? Um, and Creston was snoozing over there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but I, I think you kind of kind of mentioned on this earlier with the you know with it being Satan being bound and not able to deceive. I, I would say we got other pastors. I think it was a James. Uh, I think we mentioned it before, KJ, about um, we're led off by our own desires, mm-hmm. and um, so we're led off by our own desires. So it is a it is a fact that our flesh daily. You know, a lot of times we give the devil so much credit. The devil made me do this. The devil do this. Uh, we're led off by our own passions, our own desires. Uh, but one of the things actually that Satan was able to um, can do, um, you know, before he was bound, like I say, was this this blindness and you know, hopefully, you know, this this deceitfulness for the church to be, you know, for a church to be invisible and not be visible. I think the Lord allowed him to be a part of that process for the church. But now the church is visible and he is bound, and so by him being bound, he cannot deceive in a sense of the lack, in a sense of when it deals with the matters of, um, you know, regeneration. Um, when somebody's regenerated in Christ, Satan cannot do anything to, 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 to mess up or stop, you know, those that are, again, those that are elect of God. Um, can he still go around and, you know, you know, put his leg out for us to trip every now and then? And um, I mean, he has something, he, he does a couple of things there, but in relating to salvific things, um, uh, he's not able to actually do anything um, to deceive the elect of God in that aspect. Now, just to press it a little bit. So, like, is nations, is it only exclusive to, like, the elect? Or, like, can the nations also be unbelievers as well? Because he says he's not able to deceive the nations in Revelation 20. It's my last question. It's kind of referring to, like, the ungodly in a sense. Well, well, well. Um, again, I think this picture said the nation is that the nations were the ones that were grafted in for them, they, they for them, you know, they were outside of these promises. And but God, by Christ, He brought them into the promise as they've been united in Christ. They come into these promises in Christ, and by they getting these promises in Christ, is that um, 
so so he uses terminology for the Gentile, the nations, that now something has happened now. Something has happened. Now the nations, which were all deceived, I mean, were all were, uh, deceived. They was all in pagan worship and things of like that. But now um, they have access to the throne of God because of the work of Christ. So he, here's the old Jerusalem, new Jerusalem contrast to me. In old Jerusalem, you've got this this hill, Mount Zion, and you've got God's presence and glory dwelling in that temple. Now, in the New Testament, God's temple is not just going to rest on this holy hill in Zion. It's going to rest in every place throughout the world. So you're going to have the light and the presence of God shining and going forth through these earthly bodily temples, which we are, um, but not just set up in local Jerusalem, set up in every tribe, tongue, and nation. So you're going to have new Jerusalem reigning and conquering, um, you know, and that's what Isaiah 9 says, talking about the increase of his government, there will be no end. So you're talking about bringing in Gentiles instead of setting up shop in Jerusalem. So I got you. That's definitely all my questions. I definitely enjoy all you guys for just coming apart and being a part of something like this. It kind of shows that like for Christians and all people say, you know, Christians are like the world, but like in the world, you don't see like people having division, I guess, in their thinking, but still being in agreement. I guess being able to even discuss these topics as it kind of shows that we are all united on the essential things. Mm. It's not a primary thing. You know, if if I agree that Christian is wrong or Christian agrees I'm wrong, and then the term my salvation. What does determine salvation is like our faith in Jesus Christ. And so all of us are agreement on that. And so I just want to thank you guys so much, man. Do you have any last words when we get out of here? Well, I just want to also thank you, brothers. Uh, I love y'all and y'all sharpen me. And um, one of these days, Zach is going to write a book. I'm going to be the first <laughs> to buy it and he's going to convince me. But I love y'all. Thanks again. Um, I look forward to maybe having this discussion with some other things that we may disagree with, but let's let's you know see that as a positive thing where we can continue to sharpen one another and not see it as a bad thing on these on these tertiary important Man. but tertiary issues. Man, uh, this this is very rare. You know, um, normally having a discussion like this, you know, guys after each other's throat, man, and trying to <laughs> just the humility here. Hey, I really just don't know. Hey, this is the strongest point you have, and things of that. Man, I think it was a really good discussion. Man, I, I would love to be able to see how this can work out in other discussions, other topics, other just conversations, and um, and how we can kind of walk through this together, man. But uh, hey, KJ, um, thanks, man. This podcast has been awesome, man. I think this podcast, uh, what you're doing with theology, uh, it's been a blessing to hear in the city of Pine Bluff. And I think you know I've given messages and people all over say they enjoy your podcast. So hey, thanks for putting this on. And um, like I said, I learned so much from you guys. I left confused now. Now I don't know if I'm dispensational. I don't know if I'm on meal, post meal. Uh, I don't know what I am now. So uh, I'm just joking. I'm on meal, man. So <laughs> just keep going, Christian. You're on the right path. You're almost there, buddy. Oh man. Okay. 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 Yeah. Guys, I, man, I appreciate it. It's a it's a brotherly conversation, and man, I appreciate you guys' humility and proud to call you brothers. And man, I enjoy the podcast. I've listened to Jeremiah on here a couple times, and. Uh, man, KJ, thanks for what you do. I pray God blesses each of your churches. Um, and I, I pray that he continues to go forth and, and use you guys mightily. Thank you for what you do. Now, uh, we all leave here, man. Let's go proclaim the gospel so we can bring about the kingdom, y'all. Mm, Amen. <laughs> y'all have a good one, man. Thank y'all so much. Thank you, brother. Right, let's stay in touch, brother.